You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Well, I want to ask you guys a question. And I thought about giving you a certain type of question, but I'll just ask you a question about the question. How many of you enjoy a good rhetorical question? You. How many? How many else? Most of us feel like, I don't know about that, right? My family knows that I'm always asking rhetorical questions. And in asking rhetorical questions, a lot of times it like gets on your nerves because there's this implied answer. I'm not going to say it. If you say something else, that's kind of like ridiculous, right? Is you you when you when you talk and you speak with rhetorical questions, oftentimes what you're doing is you're just saying like there's only one real way that this could go. There's only one true answer to this. Uh, and so I'm going to ask that to you and I'm going to leave it on like you know, put it in your hands and, and and let you sit with that. We find James doing that as he continues to drive down the point that he's been driving at all through uh, our study in the book of James. And you know what? The reality is today is like the pinnacle. This is the pinnacle message of the book, not because the message itself, uh, it makes it that, but just this is the point. This is the point of what James is saying to the church. And this is what God wants us to hear. And this is what is uh, this is like our opportunity to say, okay, I get it now. I think that this should be a moment like that for us. So I want to read the text and then I want us to uh, just dive in a little bit. We're in James chapter two, verses 14 to 26. So we're going to finish out the entire uh, chapter today. All right. James two, starting with verse 14, it says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Rhetorical question. (laughs) And a follow-up question to that. Can that save him? Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 17 again. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. 
you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. By asking a rhetorical question and then unpacking it, he's making that one uh, statement that you already knew coming in the book of James, if you've ever read it or you've ever heard anything about it, is faith without works is dead. And now we get to see it in context and understand better what's being said to us. You think about a rhetorical question, right? It's a question that's asked in order to create this dramatic effect. You get, it's a dramatic effect on you. <laughs> and it makes a point rather than getting an answer. Think about yourself reading that and really ask being asked that right now. What good what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? I'm not asking you to say anything after that. Right? I'm, I'm dramatically proving a point. What good is it that somebody says he believes? You're sitting by faith in a chair right now that you believe wholeheartedly will support all of your pounds. And you ain't even thinking about it. You're not thinking about like having to maintain the right posture, right? You, you believe that and you're acting on it. All of your weight is sitting on that. That's an act of faith. All of your weight is seated because you believe that it's going to hold you up. Our faith is not something that is abstract and it's just dead, but it's active and it's living. And that's what James is calling us to. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have us look at dead faith from three different angles. And then we'll look at living faith and see if we can't see how uh, the points made for us. Dead faith is worthless profession. It is worthless pity and it is worthless piety. Okay, we'll walk through those. Those will be our points for today as we just look at the text that we just read. He began with the rhetorical question and then he goes and he says, I want to illustrate that for you. How did he illustrate it? Well, he said in verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? He's, he, he's saying, you're telling them to go. I want you to go and I want you to go in, in peace. <laughs> you're, you're saying that to them. Those, those are words that you're using. It's just empty speech person has a need and your response to them is go poorly clothed person an individual who is lacking in daily food for a time working at children's hunger fund we taught gospel centered mercy ministry and it was verses like this that helped us derive an answer for like what does it mean that you would actually be meeting needs and it's just giving people the things that are needed for them, right? Necessary to sustain life. It's usually food, shelter, and clothing. The things that are necessary to sustain life. We see a person come in and he actually says a brother or a sister. So not even a stranger. He's already asked us about, suppose some people come in that we would actually see what they're not even part of your community. What if they walked in and they were looking poor and, and, and you show partiality to the rich? That's one thing. Now he's saying, what if you have a brother or a sister who is lacking the things that they need? 
and your response to him is, is worthless. I'm saying that it's worthless because the verse right before us has already told us that mercy triumphs over judgment, right? And judgment without mercy, I'm sorry, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. The, the idea is that th there's no worth to you, there's no gain, there's no profit. What profit? What good, right? What benefit is basically what it's saying. What benefit is it to the person if you just profess and you just say, says is in present tense. It's as if even though, right, somebody continues to profess, I'm a child of God, I'm a child of God, I'm a child of God, I'm a follower of God, I'm a follower. Like I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying, but there's, there's nothing else that's behind it. He asked the question, can that faith save him? That's an implied answer. I know you know it. He followed up the rhetorical question with a simple and an undeniable question where the answer is what? What? Y'all with me, right? What's the answer to that question? Can that faith save him? No. Okay. <laughs> the first question is rhetorical. <laughs> that one is a simple yes or no, right? The first question is, is, is rhetorical. That one is a yes or no question. It's closed ended. Tell me your answer, right? And so he basically says that this person, they say that they have faith, but they don't have works and they constantly say it. And then it's proven that they don't because of what they, their actions are. That is a worthless profession. It's fruitless and it is not profitable whatsoever. Then the next verses shows us why it's, uh, you know, it, what that it produces. It produces a worthless pity. Pity should be understood as compassion. Remember, he's in the context. We took two weeks to get to it, but it's just a few words. Go back. He says, what about the person that comes in and you don't show any mercy to him? You tell him, go stand over there or sit down under my footstool. That's not compassionate. That's not merciful. It's a worthless pity to say like, oh, man, I feel for you, which is exactly what you did. Read that. Read that again. He says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needful or needed for the body. What good is that? It's not like the man in verse two that came in in shabby clothing that were dirty and tattered. This man came in and he got nothing but underwear on. And this man is your brother. So one poor man is dressed in ways that you can see like, man, he just been out there living on the street. This guy is naked. And your answer to him is go shalom, right? Go in peace. You got this, this, the, the Jewish saying, almost like we say all the time, like, hey, how you doing? Like, and, and then the next thing you already ask something else, like you don't really even care. Or God bless you with nothing else on the end of it. You literally have a man who is in his underwear and it says he's lacking his daily food, daily food, right? He's deprived. He's destitute. He doesn't have what he needs. This person is the epitome of what we said last week. Anyone who is dependent on your good will to take care of them. That's the individual that you, we serve. How dependent is an individual who's naked and starving on your goodwill to take care of them. Very, very. And so you got this, this, hey, go in peace, be warm and be filled. Let me see if I can break that down for you. Again, like I said, it's this idea that there would be a common Jewish uh, uh, statement of like, hey, shalom, shalom. You know, a person's got all kinds of turmoil in their life. You're just telling them peace. What he really said is like, 
peace. Like, peace out. Go in peace. He's told him, you go and you be at peace. And when he said be warm and be filled, you know what he didn't say? He didn't say go and like, you know, be warm and be filled because he's taking care of them. He's saying in these like second person, <laughs> he's telling them, you go and you warm yourself. You go and satisfy yourself. That's worthless pity. That's no compassion whatsoever. You ever seen it? You know, a person is coming to you and maybe you have, uh, you know, you're eating, you're sitting down, you're at a restaurant. Somebody's asking you for help. And what if you, you know, I know all of us in here, I could probably go around and just think of times that I was sitting with you where you met, you met the needs of a person on the spot. Just imagine yourself for a moment, seeing someone who has great needs, seeing someone who is uh, naked and hungry and you go and you tell them, hey, that, that uh, value menu right there, like, man, get after it. Have whatever you want, but you don't pay for anything. You, you don't have any intention on going and, and, and actually showing them the mercy and being pitiful, uh, uh, being compassionate towards them. Right. It's not pity. That's just pitiful. <laughs> you tell a person, go be warm and be filled, but you don't give them anything to clothe them and you don't give them anything to satisfy them. James is saying in, in improving his rhetorical question, that doesn't make any sense at all. And remember the point that he's making. The point that he's making is that faith that remains alone is like that. Faith that doesn't work is like that. It's dead and it it doesn't produce anything. It's to no benefit. You know, Paul made uh, uh, in, in Galatians, he made the point that religion is that right. He said religion is like it, it's, it's a co-enabler of man's sinfulness. It's of no value against it. The same idea here of no value or no benefit. So what he's saying is faith is empty and it just remains alone. It's just like religion or anything else. You you're wasting your time. And it's not real. It's dead. It's not living at all. I thought that was interesting because I had to ask myself, well, how compassionate is that? How merciful is that <laughs> to just tell a person to go ahead and take care of themselves? I think we'd all say it's not it's not merciful or compassionate at all. The third thing he says is that faith that is dead has a worthless piety. And I, you know, we don't use that word, but it just that's religious righteousness. OK, so the Jews who are reading this consider themselves to be very pious individuals. I didn't change it for a reason. As we go, I'll, 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 I'll help you to see that. This literally is written to those who are scattered abroad and for all intents and purposes have been raised Jewish and know the law know the Old Testament, know and do the celebrations and the feasts and observe all of the holidays. It's written to them. And he says this in verse number 18. Or yeah, but you, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. He links the two. Listen to this, verse 19. You believe that God is one you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
if, if you, you think that you're a pious individual, you think you're a very religious person, you think that you've got it all together, he goes and he says this to them. You believe God is one. This is undoubtedly a play on the Jewish Shema, right? Deuteronomy chapter six, we all know it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. They would go around singing it, singing it. I told Jamie, I'm going to sing this morning, right? So it's like, uh, let's see if I can get it. Shema Israel Adonai. Uh, uh, come on, somebody help me out. What's the next part, Barry? I, come on, somebody got it, right? Eloheinu, right? It's Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. It's like you're going around at least three times a day, you're singing that. At least three times a day, singing that in this religious way. And that's just the beginning of it. And so every single day, you have these individuals who go around and he say, hey, you believe that, you sing that, you say that, you say God is one. But he turns around and he says, that's no greater and no better than the devil himself. The demons believe that and they shudder. You know what it means to shudder? They tremble with fear at it. It's not just an empty, like, I'm saying this or I'm singing this and it's just words that come out of my mouth. Even the demons believe that about God. Even the demons believe that. So what profit is it to you to walk around singing about God's word, saying God to people and talking about your faith and saying that I am a Christian, saying that I'm a follower of Christ, but then having nothing behind that. You guys see why that's important? That's central. That's central to us. The very next words of the Shema say that you are to love the Lord God with all of your heart, uh, mind, or might, and, and, and strength, right? And your soul, like, like you, th that's a command. It's, it, it's a call to do things. It's a call to live out what it is that we um, what we know. And so, so it's just basically what, what, what we're hearing is that any faith that does not have behind it a real relationship that produces an obedience and good works, it's not really, it's, it's, it's dead. There's no life in it. There's no life in it at all. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll do what? Somebody else. If you love me, you do what? Okay, so the Messiah said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. James knows his half-brother well. He was there at the end of Jesus' life when Jesus would have told those religious leaders that they're hypocrites. This is what he said to them in Matthew chapter 23. You're hypocrites. You know why? Because you come to the altar swearing by the altar and swearing by heaven, but you neglect the weightier things of the law, which are what? Matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. You say a lot, you preach a lot, you speak a lot, you wanna be known as pious, but you're not the kind of person that actually backs that up in your life of faithfulness and being a just person, being a merciful person. I used to wanna to argue that what's being uh, said here is essentially that, you know, that it's no faith at all, that that's not faith. In fact, a minute ago, I caught myself realizing, like, I'm, I'm still, I think I still just think that, right? Like, that's just not faith. There's no faith there. That, James isn't going that far. James isn't trying to do that. 
James is not concerned about that. He doesn't need to say that it's not faith or that it is faith. You know what James is basically saying here? He said faith without works. We've heard it multiple times. He says it's a cheap faith. He says it's an unprofitable faith. He says it's an unfruitful faith. It's a foolish faith. Did you hear me say you foolish person? He says it's a counterfeit faith or a false faith a non-saving faith. And we come to verse number 19 and James has just told us that faith that does not produce works is a demonic faith. Faith that does not produce good works is a demonic faith. And at the end of the day, no matter how you slice it, it's dead faith. So does it matter if you talk about being something no. What if a person says, hey, I got faith, but I don't have no works. Does it matter? Does it matter if you, uh, you know, you pity a person, but you don't actually go and help them? You have no real compassion? No, zero. Does it matter that you posture yourself as a pious and a righteous and a religious individual? No, the demons do that. You guys see how James is tying it all in? The point he's driving home, if you're taking notes, is this. Any faith, any faith that does not show itself by the accompaniment of good works is seriously lacking, it's useless, and it's unprofitable. Nobody wants, y'all not going to bank on anything that's unprofitable, I guarantee you. If, if, you, if you see no profit in the business that you're doing, you're just not going to do it. You could be a wage earner, right? Knowing that you're not going to get paid at the end of this day. You very well might not be working today then, huh? <laughs> he says it's a waste. James's heart for the people, it, your heart for your brother or sister, I'm sure, is that you don't want to see a person profess faith But it'd be a worthless faith, a dead faith. I got to see Sean's heart this week for a brother who you're just you just hoping and praying and 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 trusting that the Lord is is still near and dear to him, even though he has just kind of decided to cast it off for for a while. And it's one of those moments where you just realize like. You can have all of your T's crossed with theology, all of the I's dotted, and, and you can be a, a Christian but not have a relationship with God. Did you guys hear what I just said? You can be religious but not have a relationship. And that would be a waste. A waste of your life, a waste of the gospel, a waste of the word. And so... The Holy Spirit has preserved the word for us. God has preserved his word for us so that we can come to this day and examine ourselves and even do that over against what does living faith look like? I'm glad you asked. Living faith would be what? It's not a worthless profession. It's a working profession. It's not a worth. It's not worthless pity. It actually works. Right. It's a working pity and it's not a worthless piety. It is a working piety. How does he how do you how does he explain that Abraham and Rahab? 
I want to give you homework and have you go back and read Abraham's life. Start in Genesis 11. Go to Genesis 23, 24, right? Right at the beginning of your Bible. And look at the things that you see consistently in Abraham's life. And you're going to see specific things like what's talked about here. He says, you want to be shown, oh foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? All right, I'll show you. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That moment is one of the most crucial moments in the history of mankind. God wakes up Abraham and tells him or actually speaks to him in the evening the day before, says, I want you to wake up in the morning and I want you to go and I want you to make an altar and sacrifice your son. And the first time the word worship pops up in your Bible, my Bible, we said that Abraham got up, it said Abraham got up early in the morning to go. <laughs> and when he got to the foot of the hill, he told his servants and attendants, hey, y'all stay here with the, donkey, the donkeys. Me and the boy are going to go up there and worship. He saw worship as an act of obedience to do what God had called him to do. He goes up there. He's putting wood down. He's ready to go. And he's getting ready to set a fire and sacrifice his son because God says so. He said that happened. Now, we know that there was a ram in the bush and that God, right, in, in, in giving him an opportunity to show that his faith was real, actually delivered him from that. But what we also know is that Abraham was set on doing what God said that he was to do. And he basically says that it, his faith was made complete. It was made manifest, right, justified by his works. He's he's using the term in, in a little bit of a different way than, than Paul would justification. He's not saying that's what made him right with God. He's saying that's what manifested it to us. That's what showed us and completed it, that he was really doing and, and being who God had called him to be. He said that about Abraham. I'm going to leave that right. It, the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's called a friend of God. Great. He said, from that, you should see in verse 24 that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. They go hand in hand. That means that you and I and our like true and genuineness is tested and shown and made manifest and complete and, and is easily visible because we don't be we're not the individuals who have a worthless profession that just says, hey, yeah, I am this. I believe that I was raised in church. Or I was raised in this family background or I, I, I've done this religiously. It's not just a worthless profession. It's one that the life actually backs that up and completes it. Then he goes on and he gives Rahab. And your Bible says Rahab, the prostitute, Rahab, the harlot, Rahab. You know what a prostitute is? Anybody here? OK. That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> <laughs> Rahab the prostitute, y'all. Before Joshua, right, you know, he's sending out spies and whatnot. You got to think about, like, what happened with Rahab is she was known, <laughs> very known in the community. She had a house. She had a harlot's house. I, I was going to use another H word. That, that's, how, that's, that's how she lived, and that's how she made her profit, and that's what she was known for, and that's what she's about. And she is placed in that same kind of uh, hall of faith. Read Hebrews 11 this week. You're going to see Rahab. You're going to see Abraham. You're going to see Moses. You're going to see so many people. And not all of them got a really squeaky clean life. But you know what happened? She believed and she acted. That's what he says. She was justified, right? She was justified by works when she received the messengers who were sent, um, 
I'm sorry, and sent them out by another way. She hid them. She actually hid God's people. And she was a part of a Canaanite, wicked, and pagan culture. And so now you got, like, it ain't even about your family background. It's not about your religious, like, belonging. And it, ain't, it definitely is not about your righteousness. The Bible's telling us that our heroes are people who are known as prostitutes because they believed, right? And then they lived it out. That's the goodness of God. And, and that's, that's what we're shown. So I, I figured, hey, how about this? I can tell you guys to read Hebrews 11 this week. You can do your own homework and Bible study. You can even come to me and say, I want to talk about that justified thing. Because I think Paul and James are arguing and you can do all that. I'm ready. Right. I, I would love to have that conversation with you. But that's not what we're going to do today. Here's what we're going to do. Let's revisit those five categories that we talked about last week. We said, who are the poor? Who are the poor? We said the first category, right? was biblically, they understood widows in that category. Well, Jesus Christ said that he would never leave his who? His bride. Jesus Christ would never leave, he would never widow us. He said he would never leave us. You know how we can believe that and act it out? The church can demonstrate our faith in him, understanding that commitment as we imitate that with unwavering commitment to those in our midst who are widows. Serve those who actually have been widowed. Take care of them before, before it seems like I'm just giving you something to do. James 1 27, pure and undefiled religion before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. He's already told us this is literally just an outworking of that. He's given it to us and he's trying to help us to see it like with so much practicality that it's like you should be able to walk away and just start obeying this, start moving into this, start working and, and reorienting your life that way. He also said orphans. Right. So when we think about that category, we got not just widows, we have orphans, orphans. Right. What do you know about us as children of God that we are adopted into God's family? The doctrine of adoption. We're adopted into God's family. We're not. You don't get to say, oh, I was born a Christian. <laughs> they just like they couldn't say I was born a Jew. God adopts us by grace into his family. So how can we have that faith and believe that and live it out? I'm glad you asked. What better way for the church to show and reflect this great reality of our faith than taking in and taking care of orphans, fostering children? taking care of at-risk youth, opening, opening up our home to do what? To care for those who are at risk in our community, bringing them into our community, bringing them into our family. The word of God is giving you permission to be radical in the way that you love the least of these. It's giving you not just permission. It's actually saying, hey, this is why you have been adopted into the family so that you can step into some of those same things and show and share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How about the foreigner? Remember, we talked about the foreigner. When, when they hear the poor, they know the foreigner is included in that, too. So that's a refugee. That's a person who will be a sojourner. And, and you know what? We know this term, a resident alien. Well, let's talk about that good gospel again. The gospel says we are aliens and sojourners in a foreign land, foreign land, that we are aliens, that we are the ones who are resident aliens. When we do what? When we come to Christ, our citizenship is in the kingdom. It's not here. True or not true? 
Okay. <laughs> so here's the deal. So how can we not be hospitable and welcoming to someone because they are not an American? How can we not be hospitable to a person just because they are not right uh, from our background or our culture? What better way to display this than to live in such a way that shows that no land on God's green earth is our country? That no land is my home. But the reality is, is that I'm a citizen of the kingdom. But then every home that I'm entrusted with is embassy for the kingdom. And so now everybody from every tribe, tongue and nation is welcome. So this is not my home. But God has given me a place. And so you can come and live with me. You can come and stay with me. You can come and be with me. That's called faith. That works. The last category, right? The last two categories is sick, which they would understand is the blind, the lame, the deaf. We're spiritually sick and weak, are we not? These are rhetorical questions flowing now. (laughs) We are spiritually sick and weak. When we believe the gospel of Jesus, it heals us and it restores us in a process. But once and for all, God has forgiven you of your past, your present and your future sins. Restoration starts, but it is real and it will be completed. He's faithful and he's just to finish the work that he starts in you, right? That's healing. We all need healing. We need to talk about healing more. And in fact, the reality is, is that the wording here that's that's talked about in terms of uh, the the way that you care for a person is, is really about deliverance. We need to talk about that more. We need to talk about being delivered and healed. But here's the deal. As we serve those who are sick, who are lame, who are deaf, who have disabilities, you know what we're doing? We're pointing to that work of healing spiritually by tangibly and physically serving those needs. We have faith and it works. And then you got the prisoner. And I don't think I have to ask you guys, you know, we're prisoners to sin. In fact, the Bible says that we're slaves to sin, like like at the lowest of the low, right? In a chain gang, it's just you can't get away from it. The things that I want to do, Paul says, I do not do. The things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Prisoners to sin. But what does the gospel do to us? The gospel says that when we come to Jesus, we're freed by the power of that good news. And so how do we live that out? Well, What better way to demonstrate the freedom that we have in Christ from the bondage of sin than to actually visit prisoners than to be the ones who would do what? Serve those who are incarcerated, advocate for those who are incarcerated. How about advocating for those who are being trafficked? That is prison and slavery today. Young, young boys, young girls, women in our community in crazy numbers being trafficked. How do we advocate for them and fight for justice for them and lead them to understand that God frees them? Jesus loves them and actually work. How, man, what would it be like? Sean told me a story this week about finding, walking out, or he, he's in his office in Portland. Somebody starts yelling, rape, rape, rape. What if he went down there and told that lady, hey, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and went upstairs and kept doing his work? You know what he did? I'll let Sean tell you guys what he did. But I guarantee you that his faith worked at that moment. Does that make sense? 
We don't just get to preach a profession. We don't get to just say, oh, I have so much pity in my heart. We don't get to just be the people who posture themselves as pious. We've got to be those who live out our faith. That's what we've been called to. I only gave us those five categories because I didn't want to take the whole hour. All right. <laughs> Here's the deal. This is this is just the outworkings of our faith. We're being called to be able to see and examine that faith is real because of the outworkings in our faith, because of the things that actually come out, because of the ways that we uh, live it out. And so James's message is that faith without works is useless and dead. And our message, then the message that he's given to us is that it needs to be word and works. Life and lips, right? Declare and demonstrate. It, it's both and not either or. We believe and we behave in such a way that identifies us as the people of God. When we genuinely believe that gospel message and the gospel message is free. He's extending freeness, freedom, liberty, from your slavery, from your sickness, from your being an orphan child who's just wandering around in the world, got your own daddy issues like me, right? He's, he literally comes and he says, I am a loving father. I love you and I welcome you, not because of what you've done, but you know what? You believe in that and I'll transform your life. I'll do something that you've never experienced before and I'll make it all new. I'll close just by asking some rhetorical questions <laughs> and then we'll close with uh, communion. What is the point of lip service in the church? What advantage is that to you in the kingdom of God? What in God's world does it benefit you to say that you're someone who you know you're not and you show yourself not to be? If you've been wrestling with that and you've come to understand that about yourself, Jesus's hand is open to you. His invitation is wide open to you. And his welcome, his love, radical transformation, redemption and restoration, grace and mercy, forgiveness. All of those things are yours if you would just place your faith in him and not in that chair. The chair can't sustain you. You're actually real confident, right? <laughs> You, we, a lot of times we put our faith in things that will waste away our money, outward appearance, status. And the reality is, is that God wants us to put our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And we can't even do it. So he gives us the faith to do it. He just like runs us down, meets us one day. And all of a sudden it's like, why am I thinking like this? Why do I care about these things? He starts changing our hearts and giving us new desires. If you've been in that place, I don't care if you're five or 45 or whatever the ages could be. I don't care if you have been like those who will walk around singing the songs, saying all of the Bible verses, just like the Jews who might have got this. God is one. Yeah, that's good. 
The devil believes that too. And he's not redeemed. So it doesn't matter what you've done. Today is the day of salvation. The invitation would be, hey, if you know that this is something that God is doing business with your heart, I want to invite you to come and to talk to someone else. It doesn't have to be me. That's the thing. That's the beauty of the gospel. It ain't even about like you got to come to a priest or you have to come to a certain person or whatever. Like, no, go talk to somebody and just tell them, hey, can you pray for me? That wrecked me. That's where I'm at. Okay, let me pray for us and end us and then we'll have communion together.